contrary to what we're hearing from the mainstream press, the Democrats, the GOP establishment, and sadly, even some talk show hosts of the conservative ilk, there was a red wave. It was substantial. It was significant. Yet, it was effectively and selectively countered in key states. This has created the false impression that there was not a red wave. The polling showed that we had a red wave going into it, and comprehensive exit polling showed that there was a red wave right through election day. For example, Fox News surveyed 90,000 voters, including early voters and election day voters. Here is a summary of what the Fox exit survey found. Most demographic groups shifted rightward compared to the 2020 election. Some of the most consequential shifts came among groups that had backed Biden two years ago. Women, for instance, voted for Biden by 12 points in 2020, but for Democrats this year by just four points, an eight-point shift to the Republicans. Other notable GOP gains included voters under age 30, a 12-point shift toward the Republicans, Black voters, a plus 15-point shift to the Republicans, Hispanics, a plus 10-point shift to the Republicans, college graduates, which is traditionally a really tough area for Republicans, 11-point shift to Republicans, moderates, an 11-point shift to Republicans, and suburban voters, a 9-point shift to the Republicans. So there was a red wave. The polling showed that there was going to be a red wave. Economic models showed there was going to be a red wave. And of course, the exponent showed there's gonna be a red wave. So there was a red wave, but the Democrats in partnership, effectively partnership with the GOP establishment were effectively and selectively able to counter the red wave in some key states. And those key states largely were the states where the Democrats and their operatives were confident that election integrity would not be enforced and election irregularities would not be investigated. Understanding this is important, not just because of this election, but because of 2024. If we don't understand what really happened in these states to counter red wave, we're gonna have the same thing happen to us again in 2024. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. This is Mike Friedenberg with World News Brief, one of the rotating hosts. And today we're going to do a post-mortem, part two post-mortem of the 2022 elections. Sadly, as you all know, Herschel Walker lost the runoff race with uh, Warnock. Um, this was to be expected. The fact that he lost in the November 8th election pretty much pretty much indicated he was going to lose in, lose in the runoff. If he couldn't win with the governor at the top of the ticket, Governor Kemp, he wasn't going to win in this runoff. He lost by a bigger margin in the runoff than he lost in the uh, original general. But that was not surprising given the amount of the kind of voter fraud that's happened in Georgia and the lack of voter integrity provisions in Georgia. So. This just expands the size of the disaster that was the November 8th elections. As I mentioned previously, they weren't a catastrophe because we did manage to barely hold on or actually managed to barely uh, regain the House. 
But uh, it was a disaster. And, and I'm going to repeat this because I think it's well worth mentioning. We just don't want to make light of this and you know move on. First of all, the election really demoralized the Republican Party and the conservative base. It, it really demoralized the country. We never in our in recent history, certainly not in any history I'm aware of, has there been a environment more conducive to a red wave. Yet somehow, through a combination of uh, Republican ineptitude and a big dose of voter fraud, the red wave was selectively and effectively mitigated in key races. With the loss of Walker, our ability to block bad things from happening in the Senate has been significantly degraded. And our ability to actually get something in, done in the House is really in doubt. With a 222 to 213 vote margin, whoever is the House leader, and I hope it's not Kevin McCarthy, but most likely it will be, they, they have a very, very, very narrow margin to work with. And we can rest assured out of the 222 seats held by Republicans, some are held by Republicans, who aren't going to exactly be on board with a reform agenda. They're not going to be on board with uh, holding the Democrats accountable by controlling the purse strings. So Kevin McCarthy's control, or whoever's the leader's control, is going to be very, very tenuous. And we also lost key state houses in critical 2024 swing states of Michigan and Pennsylvania. And we're in the throes of seeing what's going to happen with um, the uh, election lawsuit in Arizona with uh, Carrie Lake against Katie Hobbs. And then, of course, we lost Adam Laxalt in the, the Nevada races. And I mentioned these races because these are races that I believe we actually won. I believe these are races that were lost flat out due to fraud. Now, there was some other races throughout the country that were lost through a combination of, you know, maybe some candidates that weren't optimal extremely poor support from the GOP and sabotage from the establishment of GOP and, and fraud in combination. And of course, the Democrats were very effective at targeting the races they wanted to win. And let's talk about that a bit. Going into the election cycle, I believe the Democrats had a number of goals. And I'm going to re repeat um, what I've said previously. The goals, of course, were to protect vulnerable you know, governorships, and U.S. Senate seats, and to go after opportunities in those spaces. So they had a chance to pick up a governorship in Arizona. They had a chance to pick up a U.S. Senate seat in Pennsylvania. And they were successful in doing that. And they also were beyond just, you know, the pure political calculation of, you know, picking up seats for um, the state houses and the state governorships and the House and the Senate, they had some other maybe almost equally important goals. And one of the goals was is to shut down and to um, put a chill on any discussions of election integrity, voter fraud, and to really go after those candidates being vocal about it. So if you were in a competitive district and you had been endorsed by Donald Trump and you had been talking about um, the 2020 election and your doubts about it, guaranteed you got an extra dose of resources coming your way, um, not favorable resources, from the Democrat Party. And the George Soros folks and the other dark money um, sources the Democrats use in this case. And while in some cases you may have been facing legal ballot harvesting operations, in other cases, 
I'm convinced that there was illegal operations going on as well. So that was the goal. The goal was obviously to mitigate the red wave in key places, put their resources into the key swing states, key swing districts, and also to go after Donald Trump's endorsed candidates, especially those candidates that talked about election integrity. So at the top of the list, clearly Kerry Lake was at the top of that list. Clearly Blake Masters was there, and so was Adam Laxalt in Nevada. And and I'm gonna, you know, both Adam Laxalt and Kerry Lake had polling going into November 8th, showing them clearly in the lead, clearly in the lead by really good pollsters. So the idea that they that they lost the races in a red wave election, for example, in Arizona, where Republicans outnumber Democrats by four percent, or about 166,000 votes. That Kerry Lake lost that election, I don't buy it. Neither do I buy that Adam Laxalt, who was doing better poll in the polls than um, Lombardo, the Republican gubernatorial candidate for Nevada, yet he lost the race and Lombardo won. I don't buy that. To be more specific, the last four polls for Kerry Lake versus Katie Hobbs had Lake up by plus three, plus four, plus four, and plus three. And that includes polling by Robert Cahaley's Trafalgar Group, which has been presently accurate in the previous three cycles, including the 2021 Virginia governor's race, where Robert Cahaley predicted a two-point margin of victory when the actual margin of victory was 1.9. So he's been very accurate, um, especially in the states where strong election integrity provisions exist. This cycle, he had a few misses, but those misses not surprising, we're in states where strong election integrity provisions did not exist, and there was no threat that election integrity investigations would be undertaken. Looking at the polling, the final polling for the uh, U.S. Senate race in Nevada, that's Adam Locksall versus Catherine Cortez Masto, Trafalgar had Locksall up by plus five. American Greatness Inside Advantage had Laxalt by plus six. Uh, Data for Progress had Laxalt by plus two. And Hill Emerson Poll had Laxalt up by five. And he had been consistently maintaining a significant lead over Catherine Cortez and Maestro. So I don't believe that in the midst of a massive red wave of election, which did happen in other parts of the country that had election integrity and the threat of of investigations of election integrity issues that either Laxalt or Kerry Lake lost. In other words, there may have been more ballots submitted for Catherine Cortez Masto and Katie Hobbs, but there were not, they did not have as many voters. So there was some things that went down that just weren't right, and we're going to be talking about that. So we are going to be talking about the F word. But the F word we're going to be talking about has not yet been banned by the FCC. We're going to be talking about the fraud word. Let's just take a look here at uh, some of the things that we can talk about. Well, I've been talking about fraud and and why I believe this, this happened, along with some of the obvious markers and the fact that we have a, a, a much more fraud-friendly environment than we ever have had in the history of our country. 
And let's not forget that going into this election cycle, we had historical number of factors favoring Republicans. I don't think you can point to an election in the history of the United States where there were more factors favoring the Republicans. We had the highest level of inflation in 40 years. We had a weak and ineffective, bumbling, you know, president, very unpopular, sitting there, you know, for dragging down the Democrats. We had declining wages, the decline of real wages, especially for poor and working class Americans, rampant crime and increasing chaos, a fentanyl crisis with tens of thousands of Americans dying because, in part, of a effectively open border with Biden spending billions of dollars to to encourage illegal aliens to come across the border and then transporting them throughout the United States. Skyrocketing gas prices, a radical trans agenda being pushed by the Biden agenda. I mean, going after children and school children to, to do irreversible, both physical and psychological harm to children, disenfranchisement of parents, you know, basically going after parents as being the enemy and and all that entails. A shortage of baby formula and even a shortage of tampons. Then we have the Afghanistan debacle. Then we have the Ukraine war and the fact the United States is basically, you know, is funding this war. It's become a proxy war between the United States and Russia, it seems like. So all these factors contributed to polling showing that the Republicans would be picking up at least 25 seats in the House and at least one or two Senate seats, and that the Republicans would also pick up a bunch of state-level seats. Now, we did pick up more state seats than the Democrats did, but unsurprisingly, in the, the key swing states, the, Repu the Republicans lost seats there. That's places like Michigan and Pennsylvania. There was a Yale economic model that had been very successfully predicting elections for something like 60 years. And it's said that the Republican Party should pick up 40 seats in the House. So no way should we have seen the kind of results we did. And if we don't want to have a repeat of this in 2024, we really need to understand what happened in this election. Um, right now, the narrative being pushed by the media and sadly, you know, being um, supported by far too many Republicans and conservatives and even conservative talk show hosts is, is not a accurate narrative. It's a false narrative in the sense that it's ignoring the key element, which is fraud. So fraud does happen. It's not rare. Um, there's thousands of cases of fraud, rec fraud recorded. The Heritage Foundation keeps a fraud database of recorded cases of fraud that are prosecuted. And let's just put it this way. For every case of fraud that is found and prosecuted, there's going to be a whole lot that are not going to be prosecuted. Hans von Spakovsky, he's a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, says that what they have in their database, which is over 1,100 cases of fraud resulting in criminal prosecutions is merely the tip of the iceberg. Getting specific, about 90% of the iceberg is below the water. I don't think he's trying to get to that exact ratio, but his point is that it's, it is barely the tip of the iceberg. So how many cases of fraud are there for each one that is discovered? 
We don't know, but it's hard to imagine that it's not 30, 40, 50. It could be 100. We don't know the answer to this question, but statistical evidence combined with eyewitness testimony and recent changes in the law designed to make it easier to submit fraudulent ballots and harder to detect them suggests that it really could be the hundreds or even thousands. But whatever number it is, it's a lot. And in close races, it could be determinative, i.e. it could be what ends up deciding the race. So we certainly did not get the results that every model and every poll predicted, given how different the predicted was from the result, you would think there would be some pretty obvious evidence. And there is some obvious evidence. There's very obvious evidence. And then there's evidence that you can intuit by looking at some statistics. But first, let's look at the real, real blatant evidence. With the most blatant evidence happening in Arizona, where apparently the more subtle fraud was not enough. So on election day, they literally had to shut down the balloting stations for heavy Republican areas in order to make sure that Katie Hobbs won the governor's race. Make no mistake, this is fraud. Then you have the fact that in Arizona's Maricopa County, almost 300,000 ballots, basically I think about 292,000 ballots, had no chain of custody, i.e. these were ballots that were voted by drop-off mailboxes, and there was no recording of how many ballots were in the boxes, no signing of, of documents to show that they were safely transported and securely transported. So election law was violated there. And yet the Maricopa County supervisors voted to certify the election. That is a fraud because when they certified the election, they're saying that election law was followed. It was not followed in Maricopa County. Additionally, ballots that have been tabulated were mixed in with ballots that had not been tabulated. Tens of thousands of ballots with signature mismatches were counted. This also happened in 2020. So these are these are the actual ballots where the signatures don't match, yet they just went ahead and counted them anyway. Gosh, I wonder who that favored in the end. Then we have the issue of signature verification and signature curing. For Maricopa County, about 32 workers were involved with this. Three of the 32 workers have signed affidavits testifying to their experience in the signature verification and curing process. And what they testified to was that they were experiencing rejection rates of 25 to 40%. Now, these are sworn testimony. So they would reject the ballots. And what they expected to see is that at the end of the day is, you know, 15 or 20,000 ballots that needed to be cured. Instead, what they would see, 1,000 ballots needed to be cured. So sometime after they rejected the ballots, as the signatures not being matching, one of the signature verifier workers, Andy Byers, describes it this way. In my room, we had a whiteboard that Michelle would update with the number of ballots to be verified that day. Throughout the day, Michelle would update the progress that people were making in verifying signatures. The math never added up. Typically, we're processing about 60,000 signatures a day. I would hear that people were rejecting 20 to 30 percent, which means I would expect to see 12 to 15,000 ballots in my pile for curing the next day. However, 
I would consistently see every morning only about 1,000 envelopes to be cured. We typically saw about one-tenth of the rejected ballots we were told we would see. The most likely explanation for this massive discrepancy is that level two managers who re-reviewed the rejections of the level one workers were reversing and approving signatures that the level one workers had rejected. This seems to be about the only explanation. Now, if this is the case, then level two managers were changing about 90% of the rejected signatures to accepted. In other words, votes that arguably should have been rejected or at least cured, i.e. They, they followed up and made sure the person who said that they voted on them actually did, were thrown right into the election results. And once again, I have to ask the question, who do you think this benefited? Of course, this terribly flawed process was only made public because a few courageous workers were willing to swear under penalty of perjury that this was what was happening, three of them to be precise out of 32. That's very significant. So once again, those supervisors voting to certify the selections did so fraudulently. This is a massive voter fraud perpetrated on the voters of Maricopa County and perpetrated on Cary Lake. Of course, even getting your ballot into the system to be counted was a challenge because on election day, there was a massive breakdown in election voting equipment that surprisingly, or maybe unsurprisingly, favored Katie Hobbs. Richard Barris of Big Data Polling, also the People's Pundit, who's a uh, professional pollster, did some analysis and he found that uh, of the voting locations that were impacted by these uh, election machine breakdowns, 70% of them were in the high propensity Republican areas, high propensity areas that were delivering over 70% of their votes to Cary Lake. So this is not an accident. And even as we're speaking right now, or at least as I'm speaking right now, um, there is a trial going on in Arizona where they're looking at this sort of stuff. But really what it seems to show is that all the other things that had been done to try to throw the election to Katie Hobbs were not enough because Carrie Lake was far enough ahead in actual voters to still win on election day unless something drastic was done. So the drastic was done. If they get away with it, that means that what the message is being sent is that if you're a conservative Republican, there is no amount of election fraud that can be perpetrated against you that will not be allowed. Make no mistake, Carrie Lake won the election. More voters voted for Carrie Lake than voted for Katie Hobbs. With that conclusion, we will conclude part two of our postmortem of the 2022 midterm elections. And in the next part, we'll be looking at what actually happened at the trial um, with, uh, with the Lake campaign trying to actually get some satisfaction in the area of election integrity. And also we'll be looking at what happened in Nevada, most likely, and potentially at uh, the consequences of what happened in Michigan. Till next time, live long and prosper.